We are in our second message in the series, Deliver Us From Evil. You probably recognize those words. We actually sang those words. Uh, Nick led us in that song, and uh, it's from the Lord's Prayer. The Lord is praying for his disciples and asking God to deliver them from evil. Paul is in Ephesus. He's on his third missionary trip, and he meets some more opposition, something that happened often in his missionary endeavors. But he was resolute to see the kingdom of God progress, and in fact, communicated that to uh, some other folks, and uh, some evil forces then set out to dissuade him or even destroy him so that he couldn't do that. And we noted last week that, that Satan always seeks to impede the progress of the kingdom of God. That's just something that, that he does. And that's, that disruption comes in a variety of ways, there, but there are common factors that if you follow the breadcrumbs, you can recognize some of that sinister plan. But I want you to understand that this passage is not about Satan. It's not about the opposition. It's not about trying to figure out, you know, to be a step ahead of Satan. That's not the message, okay? The message is that God was continuing to work in the midst of the opposition, that God was not asleep at the switch, that there was something going on behind the scenes that God was orchestrating in the face of all of that opposition. There's great hope there for us. Uh, so Acts 19 was really an answer to Jesus' prayer in Matthew 6 to deliver his disciples from evil. And we see the hand of God uh, there in this passage. It was an answer to some other words of Jesus. Remember when he said to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Hell is not going to win. Satan's not going to win. But the church will be victorious. We noted from our passage that when Satan comes up against uh, the work of God, he usually utilizes an instigator who rallies other allies to their cause. He gets a, a team of people to join. And you see that in just about every church mess or every way in which, you know, uh, that kind of opposition happens. And so it's nothing new. Uh, it's there. It happens. And uh, uh, the good news is that God is in there in the midst of that. So last week, we didn't take the opportunity to read the passage because it's a long passage, but we're going to do that today. So we like to stand when we do this part of our service in honor of the Word of God. Um, I had a, a pastor come this morning and came to our church this morning and goes, you know, we just don't hear, I visited a lot of churches, we just don't hear direct teaching from the Bible verse by verse. We do that too because I think it gives honor to the Word of God to just take it at face value. That should be a regular staple. Unfortunately, it's not. So it's nothing, doesn't make us anything special. It should be what every church is doing. Uh, but the fact is, is that we want to give honor to the Word of God by going through it and by standing when we read it. You're lucky you only have to stand about, you know, five minutes. You remember uh, Ezra that had them stand all day, eight hours, and reading the Word of God? So uh, you're getting off easy today, all right? All right, let's all stand as we look. 
Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while, and about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, and she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the uh, Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowds, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you see anyone further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when they had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. A dramatic story and one in which I hope we can at least call out some of the main things that uh, the Lord would have for us today. So, Father, as we look at this passage, we want to make sure that uh, we're accurate in our interpreting of the Scriptures, and we want to make sure that we're clear in our communication of the Scriptures, and then we want to make sure that our hearts are receptive in doing what you have prescribed for us here. And so we need your Holy Spirit in every one of those steps. And we ask that you indeed will change us, change our perspectives where they need to be changed. May we not look in the mirror and say, yeah, I'm fine. And we need maybe a lot of makeup or to comb our hair or wash our face. May we humble ourselves before you and acknowledge that um, you are the creator, you are the potter, and we are the clay.
So make us into what you will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. After Demetrius gave his misguided, though passionate speech, we read this. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, so the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companion in travel. So the crowd became enraged after hearing Demetrius. That word that is used there for enraged, it combines two ideas of anger and excitement. In other words, there was a lot of heat and very little light. We can see what chords Demetrius was striking here when we hear the crowd chant loudly, and I'll address this a little later, great is Artemis and the Ephesians. I want you to notice that Luke includes the whole city in this mess when he says in verse 29, so the city, not just a few people, so the city was filled with this confusion. So it's kind of like a whole mob running onto the field after a sports game. They came to see it. Have you ever been in the midst of a situation that was almost a riot, almost a mob? It is scary, okay? My oldest son and I, 20-some years ago, went to Bolivia, and we happened to go to a Bolivia-USA soccer game, okay? I wish we wouldn't have done it. I mean that seriously. Okay, uh, They had armed guards around the entire field wearing masks and AK-47s they had on them, every one of them. There were fires being set in the stands. People were getting pummeled. And I am scared, not just for my life, but that my popcorn would spill. That was what I was scared of, okay? It was so packed, you couldn't even sit in the stands, okay? I had to sit. You know where you put your feet on the concrete? That's where I was sitting because it was so packed. And I mean, it, it just a little bit of encouragement, it would have been a riot. And I mean to tell you, it was scary. So this scene right here, um, this is uh, very ignitable. And that's what was taking place. So the whole city was coming together. And we know from excavations that have been done, this theater, that this auditorium, could seat about 25,000 people. So if it was filled, there were many thousands of people there. But I want to concentrate on two features of this scene. The words of the crowd and the confusion that was present. Demetrius was able to, like I said, uh, strum these two chords that caused the passions of the people to raise to a fever pitch. The first was religion, all right? How dare these yahoos question our devotion to Artemis and question Artemis as a real God, blah, blah, blah. 
Now, Paul did address idolatry, but not quite as they said, not quite as pointed. Uh, For instance, in Acts 17, he addressed it, but he used the cultural setting of idols there on Mars Hill, if you remember that story. And he's basically saying, listen, the fact that, you know, you guys have these idols show that you are after something more. So he's actually making a positive point and jumps off of that and says, here's the gospel. Here's what provides you something more. So Paul was not condemning the culture. He spoke truthfully and respectfully. But Demetrius and the Ephesian chant also hit another note, all right? They didn't just say the goddess of Artemis, but Artemis of the Ephesians. They were hearkening their devotion to Ephesus. This is patriotism, okay? This was patriotism. I mean, he didn't have a TV, speaking of Demetrius, didn't uh, utilize newspaper or radio, but he ginned up a kind of propaganda machine, a machine with all these other groups of people that were there, and he had the whole city in an uproar. And they were shouting about Artemis of the Ephesians. Notice what they're not shouting. They're not shouting the reality of what Demetrius and the people with him were really concerned about, which was money. We know that from the passage. He's not saying, our business is in danger. Our business is in danger. No. We want our money. No. Is that what he said? Devotion or patriotism, devotion to a, a religion or patriotism, to the normal people, that sells a lot better, right? Than just some guy thinking he's going to lose some cash. Max Lerner wrote in The Unfinished Country this, every mob in its ignorance and blindness and bewilderment is a league of frightened men that seeks reassurance and collective action. Now, for us to talk about patriotism, politics, all right, you can't do this without offending some people. All right? You know it's going to happen. So hold on to your bridges. All right? Many Christians get, get more fired up about politics and then the other part, partisan religion, than they do the gospel. Or then they do with making progress in the kingdom of God. I don't think that's a good thing. It doesn't mean you can't get excited, you can't participate. I'm not saying that. There is a place for you know, involvement in, in politics and for Christians to, to vote and do all they can. Okay, good thing, all right? However, the American church is hardly ever more misguided when it's pining for more political power. And in doing so, I think it secedes the gospel from its authoritative position. Again, it's not that politics or patriotism are evil or that they should be askewed. I'm not saying that. But it's when a biblical worldview has to be filtered first through a political spectrum to be believed and fostered and lived. It's then that these things are insidious. And that's, I think, what a lot of pastors or churches feel. When the church cannot address issues of the day without offending some political ideology, 
or strives to be politically correct, all right, it loses its power. You know what it's done? It, it's worshiping idols at that point. The idol is some political position. Chuck Colson said this. If you don't know who Chuck Colson is, he was a, um, a member of the Nixon administration, spent time in jail because of Watergate, but this is what he said. Became a Christian while he was in jail. He said, many Christians, like most of the populace, believe the political structures can cure all our ills. The fact is, however, that government by its very nature is limited in what it can accomplish. What it does best is perpetuate its own power and bolster its own bureaucracies. Well, it certainly does that, but I don't think that's what it should do, right? And I don't think any of us believe that either, that rightly politics could actually help you know, create better communities, a better country. However, the gospel, on the other hand, okay, that's what changes people's hearts. Politics can't do that. And when you change people's hearts, you change the culture. So that's where I'm putting my money. Now, two people got mixed up in this mess, Gaius and Aristarchus. They were associated with Paul, and the language here says that they were, they were dragged into this meeting. Okay, that means that there was going to be trouble up ahead for these two guys unless somebody intervened. And being associated with Paul meant his enemies were your enemies. In other words, they're victims of this kind of indiscriminate hostility. Think about this. Do you expect your enemies to be your friend's enemies? You know, people who, you know, you have a, have a thing with, okay? If you do, that's being small-minded. And that's not a test of your relationship. It's more of a test of whether you're going to allow bitterness and hostility to spread, right? Don't make that some kind of a test for your friends, that they have to have your same enemies. In the case of Demetrius, it would have spread to the death of Paul and his friends, speaking of the hostility, unless someone intervened. And then we read verse 30. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, we're not surprised that these fellow disciples would whisk Paul away and say, hey, man, you cannot go in there. That's going to that's mean trouble. We're not surprised by that. But the Asiarchs looking after Paul, that is surprising. That's not expected. Apparently, Paul was respected by the Ro Roman citizenry, at least those in high places, to where these officials were considered friends. And what this tells us is that Paul was not gaslighting the culture. He was not gaslighting the Roman officials, okay? His manner apparently kept the doors open. I think there's some wisdom there. Why is it that many within Christendom make it a point that whenever they meet someone that does not you know, agree with them religiously or does not agree with them on some social issue or moral issue, lead with that. 
well, why don't you? And immediately put people on the defensive. I don't get that. Why don't we start with love and respect? Start there. Treat everybody as a human. Right? And then maybe God will do something from that. I did a funeral this week of a gentleman that was a part of our church who passed away. A, uh, a man that uh, was a great servant. Mowed the lawn of Craig Wood's parents. Craig Wood was the man who murdered Haley Owens. Decided that he wanted to reach out to Craig Wood and made visits and wrote him letters trying to just encourage him. <laughs> who does that? Guy's a friggin' murderer, right? Uh, lest we forget, he's also a human being. Could he be a recipient of God's grace? Absolutely. Now, you may say, I'm not doing that. Well, I'm thankful there are people who can and who can treat everyone with a modicum of respect. And yet we can't even because somebody, you know, disagrees with us about an LGBTQ issue or, you know, is on the other side of an aisle for politics, can't even have a civil conversation. What the crap is wrong with us? All right? We can't be that way. We have to be able to communicate to people, start with respect and love. Now, lest you think that this was, you know, an opportunity for people to cower away from addressing things, that's not what took place because Paul wanted to go in there and talk to these thousands of people and confront the issue. He was not a coward. But his manner was such a way that people knew that he really cared. Um, and to me, he showed great courage. Those things are not polar opposites. Great courage and, you know, loving, showing respect to other people. Amen? One person. I have to work on the other hundreds of you. Okay. Next. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. But Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. How telling is it that as these various factions arrived at the public auditorium, Many were not even sure why this assembly was happening. Right? Uh, some were shouting one thing, some something else. Most did not know why this assembly was gathering. What a contrast that is to how the church should be. And I'm not saying we always function in unity, but we should. We don't always achieve it, but you know when... When we taste it, we learn to value and appreciate it, and you, you want more of that, right? I mean, starting with the unity event and having other pastors of color within my pastor's accountability group and realizing how much I had missed before, and now I'm tasting this, I'm like, man, this is so awesome, and, and I'm enjoying this, and I, 
I would have missed this if I wouldn't have just opened up my heart to what God was doing. And I'm thinking, that's, that's a little slice of heaven right there, right? As we pray and support one another. And as we gather at this unity event, we experience a little bit of the body of Christ, uh, what it should be with great variety and in unity. God draws our hearts closer together. Philip Yancey said, as I read accounts of the New Testament church, no characteristic stands out more sharply than diversity. Beginning with Pentecost, the Christian church dismantled the barriers of gender, race, and social class that had marked Jewish congregations. Paul, who as a rabbi had given thanks daily that he was not born a woman, slave, or Gentile, marveled over the radical change. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. See, without the gospel, without the mission of expanding and experiencing the kingdom of God, these, all of these differences, you know what they bring? They bring confusion, right? And if you look at our culture, it's confused, right? Paul wrote in his book of the Ephesians, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What is it that brings people together? Nothing does it better than the gospel. Nothing. Not a political system, not education, not evening the scale economically, although we are for you know, seeing people advance. The fact is it's only the gospel that can bring hearts together. But boy, if you look at our culture, I mean, confusion is a pretty good description. But listen, I say this not as condemning the culture, but we need to look at this as an opportunity. I mean, what time has ever been greater in the history of our country than now for the gospel to bring unity to people who are divided? What opportunity is better than now for a biblical worldview to bring clarity. When people are fearful and they are irrational, like we see in our story today, they're not prone to dialogue, okay? They like to blame. They like to get off in their little groups. And what's interesting, if you think about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they normally hated each other. But they came united, why? For a period of time, to come against Christ. (laughs) We find today much confusion and a frenzied allegiance to political um, ideologies. And what's interesting is, is much of this cannot be questioned because of the verbal pounding of people within the postmodern cultural wars as they inflict that upon others who disagree with them. I mean, it's crazy when you look at this kind of thing happening in our culture. We're introduced to a character named Alexander who had the misguided idea that this would be a great time for Jews to step up, you know, to the platform and, you know, try to get some political clout and keep people uh, from blaming them, apparently, for 
this mess with uh, thinking that they were against the Ephesian cult, the Ephesian idol. So blame the Christians, Alexander is wanting to say, not us Jews. What they didn't account for was the racism of Gentile Ephesians toward the Jews. Because what did they say? That's a Jew. That's a Jew. Shut him up. That's a Jew. Can't let him speak. They drown him out with two hours, two hours of chanting. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now listen, I was there when Mark McGuire hit number 60, okay? Went away from the big record, you know, Babe Ruth and all. Crowd went nuts at the old Bush Stadium. Maybe two minutes, okay? It was loud. I mean, stands were rocking. Oh, that was pretty cool. Uh, I was there when Jim Edmonds made his famous catch in center field against the Astros during the playoffs. And then Scott Rowland hit a, a home run in that game. And man, we're, we're excited. About two minutes, okay? Two hours of frenzied yelling and chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. In the face of a mob, maybe a little racism seems innocuous, right? I mean, you know, they didn't let their real motive of money um, be known. They kind of clouded it with this patriotism and, you know, a frenzied devotion to uh, Artemis. Uh, they manipulated people. So a little racism, you know, that was just accepted. And if you think it's a little innocuous, then, boy, you're wrong. <laughs> uh, isn't it funny, though, too, how people who oppose God's work often invite a whole host of fleshly patterns to be a part of their orbit. And you certainly see that in this. I mean, what an unsavory mix of attitudes and actions taking place here. The main problem, I think, with racism, since most of us in this room don't experience it, okay, at least we're not the recipients of it, unless you maybe go to another country or you're in another situation, is that we usually get our information from media outlets, all right? And there could not be a worse source. Now, what I would recommend is speak to another black brother or sister or somebody else from another minority and just listen. And just say, what's it like for you here? Keep your mouth shut and just listen. All right? You do that once or twice. It might, hopefully, change your view. In addition, when you view racism from the scripture, you realize it's a sin, right? Gentile Jews going on. That's what we see here. But don't think that that's the main point of this passage, because it's not. It's a part of it. But in the midst of this riot, racism, manipulation, confusion, seeking harm to Paul and other Christians, what we see is that God was still at work. I mean, 
What a strange brew. I mean, you know, if I'm, you know, if you're a pastor and you're wanting to go to some, you know, ministry event and brag about how God is using you, you're probably not going to use, yeah, you know what, I was in a riot. I almost got killed. You know, no, you, you know, you're going to want to talk about, yeah, thousands came to Christ and this, you're not going to give this. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know the city of the Ephesians as temple keeper of the great Artemis? Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another, but if you seek anything further, it will be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify the commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Okay, so first of all, this town clerk was like a a city manager, if you will, okay? And apparently this one was highly respected because people were listening. So he was able to quiet them down, and they listened to him. What he said? Well, he said, number one, since Artemis is so great, since our city is so great, since Artemis is indeed a divine God, what do we have to worry about about this guy? Now, I don't agree with his first premise about Artemis being so great, right? But you can at least follow along with the logic. I mean, we did have a stone fall from heaven, right? It could have been a meteorite. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but it's likely it was something like that. And they, you know, just assumed it was sent by Artemis. Look at that sign. Secondly, the clerk asserts that the two men brought before them are innocent. They were not disrespectful to Artemis. They didn't break a law. Thirdly, this crowd that was all upset had every opportunity to adjudicate these charges in the courts instead of trying to become a lynch mob. Now, if they were to proceed with this current track and try to do harm to these men without a trial, Ephesus would be in trouble with Rome. Rome didn't much care about whether the gospel was true or not, but it did care about keeping peace in their provinces. And so if you're going to have a riot here, then we're going to have Rome standing on our neck, and you don't want that. It was the politics of the situation that this town clerk understood, right? And cooler heads prevailed. Remember when I said politics is not evil in and of itself? Here's an example where God used a political mindset to save Paul's bacon. Now, I I just can't help but think, you got these Christians in Ephesus Can you imagine looking out your window from your home as a Christian and watching this take place? I mean, I would be thinking, honey, I think it's time for a good long vacation and get out of here, right? Right? But we don't don't read of Paul hiding under the bed in a fetal position, okay? I mean, he could have easily stuck out 
snuck out in, in the middle of the night and said, you know what, this missionary business, man, that's for the birds. I'm done with this, right? No. I mean, you look at the litany of offenses. Who could, if we had a missionary come up here and share this story with you of what happened to them, who would fault them from getting out of that country, right? I mean, and sometimes that is called for. Uh, we had one of our own staff members uh, who later served in an Arab country, and Christians in his office were hogtied and had their throats slit, and they stole his laptop. So ev- all of his personal information was compromised. So he and his wife had to leave the country. They still ministered from long distance. But, you know, you got a family, kids, that's a whole other ballgame. You can understand that. But what does Paul do? I mean, he tries to go and confront (laughs) this mob. That's crazy. But in the midst of all this, God is still at work. Boy, he saves Paul. That's pretty cool. But if you're prone to think that, you know, in the midst of your mess, a predicament you might be in, that God is asleep at the switch, that maybe he's left you, that he doesn't much care, enter Demetrius. He's the ringleader of this commotion in Ephesus. The Apostle John, in his third epistle to the Christians in Asia Minor, mentions a Demetrius. Now, in, uh, to be fair and to be intellectually honest, we don't know with 100% certainty that it's the same Demetrius. But it sure sounds like it. And many other commentators say that this was the same guy. But get this. John is commending Demetrius for his witness because of lingering questions about his conversion. Now, if you'd been there at that scene and you heard that Demetrius came to Christ, you might doubt whether that actually took place, right? But this is what John writes. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. In other words, there's a real change in his life and his life matches up with the truth. There's no known, obvious hypocrisy. That's pretty cool. Now, we're not told of how this Demetrius came to Christ. But it's cool to think that Paul was kept out of the theater, but Demetrius was not kept from the gospel. That he came to Christ. God was working in the middle of a mob. I think God can work in the middle of your mess. I think God is there with the things that that really concern you. He does not leave you. I know at times it feels like it. But just the basic modicum of of faith, you know, base level, Hebrews 11 says, that God is there, that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. I'm going to continue loving and worshiping him and somehow, some way, he's going to work in that. And sometimes that's all you have. 
But that's faith. That is faith. And that's what God calls us to. In the midst of your mess. It's not, you know, a self-determination that my will is stronger than the next person's and I'm going to, you know, endure this. No. It's just apprehending the reality of who God is, what he's able to do, and he never ceases to love and care for you. Let's pray.